Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's Monday, which means it's time for the Front 3 Weekend Review. Your Front 3 tonight are me, Adam Boltwood, the one and only Chris Hennage. Evening. And Nico Morales as well. I think that's that's three in a row now. Patrick. Three in a row. Unbelievable stuff. Um, obviously, you're out in Florida, Nico. Uh, how you getting on out there? There was uh, some sort of uh, bad weather. A bit of rain, was it? Yeah, a bit of uh, 120 mile per hour winds. Oh, uh, wow. you know. Just some of that so i'm, I'm doing okay though you're doing okay you're safe and sound i'm safe and sound unfortunately some other people in the state are not um and the thoughts go out to them um but you know i'm doing all right good good we're glad to hear that and uh, chris you're just back from the united states yourself yeah i landed uh monday morning at eight o'clock and i've been back now for a little over 12 hours <laughs> and i'm yeah, I don't know what time zone I'm on, if I'm really honest. Running on fumes, but you're still here. That's dedication. We like that. We like that. Um, guys, it's the weekend review as always. We're going to chat through some of the big talking points, some of the big events from the Premier League this weekend. There's only one place to start, really. That's tonight's game. Uh, Monday Night Football, West Ham against Huddersfield. Chris, uh, 2-0 in the end to uh, Slavon Bilic's side on his birthday. So a fitting present for Slavon Bilic. Uh, finally up and running their first win of the season. Yeah, it wasn't the greatest game. Uh, personally, I, I had I had a hard time finding an excitement in it because some of the passing was okay, but I mean, West Ham were really direct. They essentially set up with the intent of let's hit Andy Carroll and see what happens. Um, and obviously Sam Allardyce was in the studio for, for Sky kind of giving his survival blueprint. And And I think Without realising, West Ham certainly adopted some of the, the ideals in there in terms of not really taking risks in their own half and things like that. But I just feel that West Ham, when I watch them, they're a little bit uh, imbalanced in terms of they don't seem to me to have any real traditional wingers outside of uh, Antonio, who I thought was actually very good. And then it's trying to fit Chicharito around Carroll. And then, I mean, Arnautovic has to come back, but Arnautovic isn't really a winger for my money. Um, so it's it seems like they're they're still in that awkward stage for me personally, and and for Huddersfield, I think this result's sort of been coming for a, a week or so now because you know they've been really efficient in front of goal in terms of scoring chances, and at the same time their opposition haven't been, um, and so 
I think for for me to see them lose like this, it's not a terrible surprise. I think they've got some weaknesses now that the teams will start to try and exploit and maybe have more joy within the coming weeks. Yeah, the 100% record is is finally over, thanks to Simon Bilic there. A much-needed win for West Ham, uh, potentially saving his job. Uh, Frank de Boer, not so lucky, though, Nico. Uh, officially given the heave-ho by Crystal Palace and by the club chairman, Stephen Parrish, today. Uh, obviously, a very poor start for Crystal Palace. Four games played, four defeats and no goals scored, following their 1-0 defeat to Burnley at the weekend. Uh, de Boer is now actually the first permanently appointed manager in Premier League history whose side has failed to score in their tenure. But, I mean, this is just ridiculous, isn't it? Sacking him after four games, having brought him in, talking about this long-term plan, talking about this long-term vision. Turns out the whole thing was just a joke. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of thought you know, trains of thought in terms of the divorce hacking. I think there's valid points on, on every side, really. Um, people talking about how it is incredibly early to, to have sacked a manager that supposedly uh, the people at Crystal Palace and the, the hierarchy there had given him so much confidence. And maybe, you know, they were expecting some of the, some of the, a, a slow start considering the style of football that he had. But that really is where the other train of thought goes is that people like myself and, and you know, before the season thought, you know, Frank DeBoer, he, he may be a, a good manager for someone like Ajax, maybe uh, a team that tends to control the talent of the league, um, especially one uh, a league that, that panders towards his play style. You know, I've, I've spoken about the ineffectual nature of his possession style, you know, the defense with the ball and maybe not too many risks and how that really isn't right, uh, a, a correct style for a Premier League team that tends to fight relegation. Um, and so I think there are, you know, with those two trains of thought, I think there are valid points on both sides. But it just doesn't seem like there's a whole, like you said, cohesion with the, with the thought process of the hierarchy at Crystal Palace. So I don't really know what's next. And, and, and I mean, they have decided what's next in terms of Roy Hodgson. And I don't, I don't really think that's the right move either. So I, 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 I struggle to, to believe that they will survive in the Premier League this season. Mm, it's a curious one, isn't it, Chris? I mean, uh, on the one hand, there is the fact that Crystal Palace are the first team to lose four games without scoring. Uh, the first four games, I should say, in Premier League history. Uh, an interesting article coming up on the BBC uh, sort of detailing some of Palace's reasons behind the sacking. Uh, De Boer apparently diverted from a number of agreements reached when he signed, such as the team's formation. Um, Stephen Parrish and the club's hierarchy were unimpressed by the squad's struggles to adapt to the style of play tried to implement. There was poor feedback on planning methods and sessions. Uh, the atmosphere at the training ground was apparently poor. Uh, the relationships with certain players uh, listed here, such as Damian Delaney, uh, Joel Ward and Lee Chong Young were poor. And there was also a perceived lack of input in the transfer activity. So there's obviously a lot of issues uh, apparently between Frank de Boer and, uh, and the, the club's hierarchy there. But at the same time, like Nico's saying there, there is that sort of lack of foresight. Was this a mistake in the first place to hire de Boer? They sort of knew what they were getting in terms of his playing style, in terms of what he was going to try and implement. Uh, and yet to not give him the time to do that, uh, smacks of short-termism. Yeah, I would, I would say so. I think, as I said on, on Twitter earlier today, I think if Crystal Palace had had a, a talented director of football, and uh, by that I mean not Dougie Friedman appointed in mid-September, then this transition could have been much easier. Because for me, Steve Parrish isn't, I don't want to say a football person, but he's not someone with a wealth of football experience. And so you're relying on a, a bit of a novice opinion there to, to try and smooth things over with someone who 
again, clearly has a, a lot of football intelligence. And I think there are faults on both sides to that end because clearly this is not a good fit for De Boer either. Um, I don't think he's a terrible manager at this stage. I don't think he's a great manager at the, at the same time because I think he should have been able to identify these issues much sooner than he did. But I think for for Palace specifically, if, if you're not going to be able to oversee a, a fairly decent, I would say, overhaul of the squad, it seems very naive to then try and drastically overhaul the style of play that you're that you're using because a lot of those players, some of them you mentioned there, Damien Delaney sticks out, is, is probably not going to be a fit for a team that's playing three at the back. Um, and I think this is where clubs like Palace and West Ham, I think, need to install somebody that can actually serve as a bridge point between the pitch and the ownership because you need someone who can essentially install a continuity more than anything. So the the, the issue that Palace and me have is they've chopped and changed. It's Allardyce. It's, uh, I'm trying to think who came after Allardyce, crikey. Um, you know, it was Pulis. They, all these kind of very similar type of managers that had a similar ethos. So there was no real issue in switching out. The problem is, is that when you want to change that, you need to have someone in, involved who, from the minute that, that Sam Allardyce leaves, can say, okay, these are the kind of players we have or these are the kind of players that that we have at our club and this is the type of manager that will fit with that and allow us to transition slowly. Because I think that's the biggest problem here. It's, it's such a harsh transition in terms of style of play that you are asking players who, even if they were good enough, just weren't used to it. And I think that's, that's the biggest uh, misstep here from a Palace perspective. Mm, it does make you wonder where the club's going. As you said there, obviously, Sam Allardyce uh, and Tony Pulis built this squad, as it were, and then to ask Frank de Boer to, to transform their playing style, to transform that philosophy in, what, um, less than 80 days, I think, he, he ended up having in, in South London? 77. Uh, yeah, just ridiculous. I mean, uh, where do you think... Palace goes from here, Chris. All the signs pointing towards Roy Hodgson now uh, coming in at the club. Um, perhaps a manager for points prove after his spell with England. Could this be a good marriage between uh, club and potential manager? I think he's more in keeping with the managers they've had. That's that's the difficulty. You need to you need to stagger that change in. And Hodgson has the potential to be a safer pair of hands because he won't take as many risks because he will look to to set them up with defence being the the first kind of uh, achievement and then thereafter you build. So I think if you're you're looking at the timeline to go from Allardyce to Hodgson, that's not a, a drastic um, departure, I think. I mean, in, you know, in the, in the long run of things, really, it's a shame they couldn't keep Allardyce. And I say that as somebody who's not always his biggest fan because I think at times they were playing... Stuff that was was fairly okay, you know, it wasn't as expansive as um, as maybe Parish wanted, but it was wasn't terrible. I wouldn't say it was more entertaining than what Hodgson will likely dream up. And I mean, even saying that, I think Hodgson is a risk at the same time because his time with England was atrocious for me. I don't think it's fair to paint it any other way. The whole solid qualification campaign means nothing because they were the biggest fish in that pond to begin with. Every time he had to step up on a big occasion. They were left faltering massively. I mean, they were, you know, done by Costa Rica, which, I mean, you can can debate how good Costa Rica are all day long, and then Iceland, who, again, were minnows of the tournament. So, 
Yeah, I think I think of the options, he's probably the safest. Um, and he meshes well with the squad of players they've got. But I think for me, Palace need to take a long, hard look at themselves hmm. as a football club because, as I say, they, they've bounced from manager to manager for, for far too long now. And they've been very fortunate that they, they've stayed in the league while they've done it. But at the same time, I would caveat that with, you look at, say, someone like Villa or, or teams that have gone down. I mean, even even probably Newcastle, you can throw in there. It usually comes after a period like this one that Palace have gone through the last few years. It, for me, a relegation like theirs is not one that's born overnight. It, it seeps in and surprises you. And and I think as you know, as we've seen, the the quality on paper in inverted commas means nothing these days. It's just at some point you just have to say, where is this club going? What is the plan? What is the the long term vision when? It seems like they thought, ah, oh, this would be a nice idea. We'll bring in a manager, you know, from Ajax. Uh, sort of, he's got that philosophy ingrained in him. He's won four titles there. He's won the era to visit four times. Uh, th- this would be great. We'll get him over. Um, he'd institute his philosophy nice and easy, but they didn't do any of the the actual logistical work. They didn't lay any of the groundwork to actually make it a reality. And then, as we discussed it, it didn't give any chance, didn't give any time to uh, to actually bring in those changes. Obviously, Roy Hodgson is a very short-term appointment. Um, he's not someone who's necessarily going <laughs> to change the uh, the entire identity of a football club. I think, as you're saying, Crystal Palace do need to take a look at themselves and think, well, where is this project going? What are they aspiring to? I think maybe this is something Chris alluded to as well, is you know, had they stuck with Sam Allardyce or had the situation with Sam Allardyce proceeded, then maybe that would have been better for them as a club, you know, a consistent style of football that maybe matches up uh, to the style of football that seems to work in the Premier League would be good for a club that's looking for consistency and looking to cement their place in the top flight. But I think we can we can talk about how he was unfairly dismissed and, and say that, you know, he was given far too little time, which I think is a completely valid point. I think even saying that, the more valid way that I would have liked to have seen Frank DeBoer dismissed, because I think he would have eventually been dismissed, is by at least giving him enough time to implement his style of football over a larger period of time so that we could have seen whether it was successful or not. Um, and, and that's, I think, what, what every football club should do when they appoint a manager is allow them time to implement their football style and then see what works out and see what needs to be fixed and if it's the manager then it's the manager if it's certain players then it's those players but obviously none of these precautions and none of these none of these thoughts were taken into account and it just seems to be a bit of a mess very much so very much so made the mistake in hiring in the first place i think and uh yeah if you're interested to see where crystal palace end up this season uh, the other big talking point in that big game from the weekend, of course, was Liverpool versus Manchester City. Uh, 5-0 it ended in the end to Manchester City. Of course, that red card for Sadio Mane uh, affecting the game. Um, what do we make of this? Because I saw a lot of debate. I'm still seeing a lot of debate tonight. Gary Neville's tweeting out photos from the, the West Ham Huddersfield game of... Uh, a boot in a face, saying suggesting that should be a red card. Of course, Matt Ritchie uh, was involved in a similar incident that raised question marks in Newcastle with over Swansea. But this is an obvious red card, isn't it? Dangerous play, whether or not his eyes are on the ball, whether or not he had to go for it as an attacker. It was an obvious red card. There's no question marks. Are there, Nico? 
I I, th- I think there's no question marks at all. And people people using other examples of missed calls as a, maybe a justification for why they feel the Mane challenge shouldn't be a red card is irrelevant because realistically those challenges should be red cards. I mean, if we want to take the danger out of the game, because I think, the and I pointed this out earlier on my Twitter, is that the reason that we're talking about this situation in such jest and in such a light manner is because we have literally experienced the best case scenario for this situation. Realistically, and I'm not intending to maybe sound like I think it was Sir Alex Ferguson a couple seasons ago who, you know, over exaggerated a situation and said I think it was Robin Van Persie that could have died in this situation. Oh, but yeah. I think yeah. le- legitimately, had Sadio Mane made a different kind of contact with maybe the neck or the back of the head or a different part of the head or whatever, we could have seen Ederson paralyzed. The most that we're seeing is is perhaps you know a slight fracture in the jaw, and he was actually back. In training today with a with a head cap on like Peter Check, so we experience the best case scenario, and we want it. We don't want to have these dangerous kind of head injuries. There was a people pointed out to me that there was another challenge earlier in the game from Nicholas Anamendi where his foot was near Sadio Mane's head. I haven't seen the challenge. I haven't seen the the the, the replay, the direct replay, but I think. If 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 it's a similar challenge like the one where people's you know feet are flying near people's heads, then those are the kind of challenges that we should be taking more seriously. Because, like I said, the, these are very dangerous things, and the most important thing is keeping the players safe mm. and and still having a competitive and physical game. But you don't have to be risking your you know the 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 mobility of the rest of your limbs for the rest of your life just to play football at the highest level. It doesn't have to be that trade-off. It's very true. I mean, the uh, the Edison injury itself looked pretty grisly from the pictures that emerged on social media. He's obviously got a few stitches in his face there. It does look, uh, it does look a nasty one. But even so, the, the end result shouldn't determine whether it's ascending off or not, the severity of the injury, Chris. The fact is, with Mane's foot that high, is dangerous play and therefore is surely a red card. Um... At first, when I first saw it, I thought, no, it's probably yellow. Um, I'm more convinced, having heard the, the argument by others that Nico put forward, that, yeah, red is probably fair. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's dangerous. Um, I think the consistency issue always brings itself up because there, are, there, are, there have been instances already this season where that kind of challenge hasn't been carded at all. Um, I mean, you know, we saw on Sunday, Matt Ritchie got a yellow card for connecting with, I think, Alfie Mawson's arm. So it's, it seems to me a slightly grey area in terms of Edison gets kicked in the head, so it's a red card. Mawson gets kicked in the arm, so it's a yellow card. And Bemba got kicked in the head, I think, when was it, Huddersfield a few weeks ago? No card at all. So I think perhaps the frustration and the, the discourse comes from the fact that it's it seems quite a difficult challenge to gauge in terms of what is justified punishment and yet I think most people seem now to say that you know you can't really complain with with a red card being given um I, I don't think I know it doesn't influence the or shouldn't influence what sanction was given I don't think Marnie was trying to, to injure him or even connect with him or anything I think he was genuinely trying to win the ball um, but I think that that's that's irrelevant though because no, you, yeah, I'm saying that I'm saying that yeah. I'm, I'm just that it's I think you know it it doesn't that's why I wonder if if a three game ban seems a little bit egregious in that sense because again he's not gone to to actually hurt him he's gone and and mistimed something and and made a an error of judgment so maybe it's 
maybe it's a two-game ban, maybe it's a one-game ban. I'm not sure. I think this is one of those moments where the 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 rules and the laws kind of have to catch up with with what's occurring in the game. Yeah, and if I can uh, if I can just say like I I think also the difficulty for maybe a lot of Liverpool fans and and really football fans in general is that we tend to you know wear our biases in terms of our clubs on our sleeve and that's fine. Um, because I think when you say that, you know, it was definite red card, and, and I'm certainly saying that, um, that there is the insinuation that, you know, Mane was doing this with a certain degree of malice, and I don't think that at all. I think to base a card or something like that on intention is very difficult to do based on the referee's decision because he might be far away from the play, and you can never really tell of someone's intention. I think the point here is the the general reckless, recklessness of the challenge uh, in conjunction with you know the safety of a player is the thing that the, the rules of the game should really reflect. And any challenge like that uh, or resembling that contact or not, I think, I think should be read. Hmm. Of course, Liverpool going down to 10 men did colour the game, Nico, but uh, City did their job. They were clinical, 5-0 winners in the end. Uh, who were you particularly impressed with on the pitch for uh, for Pep Guardiola's side? Yeah, I think it was, besides the red card, a lot of people talking about how Liverpool were dominating previous to the red card. And they, they I think, uh, for me, they had the semblance of creating chances as opposed to actually creating uh, quality chances. I think they had like a lot of possibilities to to create a lot of stuff but it didn't actually result in shots on target which is the thing that you need to score goals but in terms of who I was impressed with uh, from a Manchester City perspective was uh, Benjamin Mendy and Danilo I think Danilo uh, slotted in at an unfamiliar position at right center back pretty pretty seamlessly and then also um, Benjamin Mendy he was essential in breaking down Liverpool and I think this you know a lot of people speak about how Pep Guardiola isn't as pragmatic as he should be and maybe he should try to find a more defensive approach. And that's exactly what he did in this game. I think he asked the two questions of Liverpool that um, they struggle with most, which is in some situations, you know, Liverpool can overexert themselves in a press. And sometimes they did that. You know, uh, Mohamed Salah was far too high. And equally as, you know, they were exposing the space in behind Benjamin Mendy and uh, Mohamed Salah was getting a free run in at uh, at Nicolas Adamendi, um, the positioning of both Kyle Walker and Benjamin Mendy allowed for Manchester City to break that initial line and then get in between the, the defensive line and the midfield line. And that caused a ton of problems, even before the red card for Liverpool and especially afterwards. Um, so and then also the city employed a, a defensive approach that uh, Liverpool pushed their fullbacks far too high, and City were able to counter in some situations. So Pep Guardiola, I think, did really well to to ask the questions of Liverpool that they couldn't deal with, and then obviously the red card really helped Manchester City with their result. But I think ultimately the 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 scoreline was a little bit flattering, but I'm still impressed with the. The things that City were able to do. What did you make of uh, Kevin De Bruyne's performance? Because he was a man who was singled out by Pep Guardiola after the game uh, as being delighted with his, with his performance. Uh, two assists, I think he got in the end, also playing a role in the fourth. Uh, he's a player now, you know, one of City's uh, most talented uh, forwards, as it were. But there's a lot of competition now, isn't it? I think he has cemented his position over the past, you know, year or so because with Kevin. Kevin De Bruyne, you have someone that's 
so intelligent from a football perspective that regardless of the lack of maybe the, the physical attributes that he's missing, you know, he's not the paciest player in the world. He's not the strongest player in the world. And in some situations, and that's really the problem with playing him as a central midfielder is that he does lack, um, whether it be in terms of effort or understanding positionally um, from a defensive sense. But, you know, the things that he's able to do with the ball and the understanding understanding that he has of the pitch you know we, we often take that for granted I think is that we we can see all, all you know 22 players roughly on the pitch and we can see what need what passes should or should not be taken but it's difficult from you know players perspective to always see that but players like him players like David Silva and Tony Cruz seem to understand those things and so I think use it utilizing him in, in a more forward role especially um, in more counterattacking situations as they did against Liverpool is really accentuating his best qualities because he has an excellent delivery on the ball and he can also be a really physical uh, central midfielder that can you know go past players in really key areas and cause a lot of trouble and that combined with his vision is just absolutely devastating so I, I think he's been the key man for Guardiola for quite a while and it's really nice to see that um, that conjunction of usage between him and David Silva because that was something that Manuel Pellegrini struggled with you know he played either or and not really both um, or one of them was forced out into the wing and seeing them both in a central area I mean that that causes a lot of problems to, to any defense. Of course, uh, Liverpool's capitulation, as it were, raising certain question marks, uh, sort of raising those questions again about why a centre-back wasn't signed in the summer uh, to strengthen that back line. But you wrote an article, Nico, uh, for The Ringer, suggesting that Liverpool's biggest defensive weakness is actually Jurgen Klopp himself. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are taking it as sort of a reactionary thing from the game, and it was it was uh, far from that. I think the the Manchester City game, as I touched on before, was a perfect encapsulation of some of their defensive issues. But if you look at how they structured the midfield and how easily it was to sort of bypass those defensive things, um, you know, Manchester City, due to some clever positioning, were able to directly attack uh, their center backs, which if you put if you do that to any team in the world, whether it be Real Madrid or Manchester United or really anyone, any center back will struggle in those situations. That's just the, the long and short of it. So I think it's much less about going out and getting someone like Virgil van Dijk, which is obviously the the, the defender saga that, that dominated the Liverpool headlines, and more about Jurgen Klopp evolving his style. This doesn't mean that Jurgen Klopp's a bad manager. Obviously, I think the the coup to go and get Jurgen Klopp a, a year, a year and a half ago now, um, really speaks to the club's uh, intentions. They want to overachieve, and the way that they can do that is by employing a manager that seeks to use the quintessential tactic in overachievement, you know, pressing and, and, and everything that it can do in uh, getting better results against teams that might be better than you on paper. Um, but I think if Liverpool are to be more consistent, you know, sometimes we can say, oh, well, they're going to play a team that's going to sit in, they're going to struggle, and it tends to happen. If, if they're going to beat those teams and be more consistent in the league and maybe win things and, and achieve the aspirations that the club, Liverpool club uh, is, is looking for, then I think Klopp has to be a little bit more consistent and, and evolve um, his style a little bit to... Uh, to, to suit the, the type of tactics that they're going to be subjected to. Mm, we'll definitely link to that article in the description of the podcast. Do go and check it out from Nico on The Ringer. Um, would you agree with that, though, Chris, that uh, you know, uh, regardless of whether Liverpool did manage to bring in a, an upgrade, as it were, at centre-back, uh, the problem essentially is the way Jurgen Klopp is setting out his team and exposing them? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Actually, it's a, it's a really good piece if, if anyone's got the time to, to sit down and read it. Um, 
I think, I mean, I said on on Saturday watching them, Liverpool, even with 11 men, you look at that first goal and it's just a nightmare from a defensive perspective. It's not a defensive line. I think it's more like a defensive rhombus. Um, and and there's no real communication again and, and between Klavan and, and Matip. So I think it's very easy to point and say, well, just go and buy Virgil van Dijk. He'll, he'll uh, potentially fix things. I do think that there has to be some sort of onus and responsibility on Klopp, though, because you look at, uh, at the way they defend and the way they're set up and the fact that the way they play does expose them sometimes. And and I question if if he's almost pragmatic enough as a manager to win the Premier League because he doesn't seem willing to adapt that much, to me at least. Um, I could be horribly wrong on that. But from what I've seen of him so far with, with Liverpool, he's very sure on how they want to play. And, and at times that's great and I can imagine Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's podcasts where I've said it's to have such a defined identity is brilliant. The issue comes when someone like Guardiola deconstructs that and works out what the flaw or what the weakness is that you can't move and mold with it and then change to something else. It's... Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a, a curious one. I feel like Liverpool are, are stuck between two paths of being a, a very decent top four side and a team that actually wins the Premier League. They're, they're just not there yet for me, I don't think. Let's move on to Spurs then, away at Goodison Park. Um, we spoke on Thursday when we were sort of giving our fan league predictions. Nico, I was a little bit worried about this one. You know, Everton, they look good on paper. They've made all these new summer signings. You know, how would Spurs get on? Turns out I needn't have been worried. It was one of the most one-sided games like I remember seeing for Spurs in recent memory. Uh, Spurs were in complete control, created so many chances, ran out 3-0 winners in the end. Um, perhaps lucky with that first goal. Um, from Harry Kane, a sort of cross come shot, or as I think, what did, how did Jimmy Conrad describe it on the uh, the kickoff? A scross, a scross. I think you know he got that bang on. Um, but it was an interesting game, Nico, in terms of how Tottenham dominated um, tactically. We spoke about how they were going to play that back three. Davinson Sanchez looked very impressive in that system, slotted right into the Spurs lineup. But Kuman himself said after the game, you know, they didn't anticipate this midfield diamond that Pochettino had gone with. Uh, something that we haven't really seen before in his Spurs team. Uh, and it worked wonders for Spurs on the day. Yeah, I think I rightly convinced you to to, to not worry about the Everton game. Oh, and, yeah. and look what happened. You were right, <laughs> um, you were right. 
<laughs> no, but I think what's really cool here, and and one thing that I really admire about Mauricio Pochettino is the usage of the center backs, and and like you mentioned, you know, the back three using using Davidson Sanchez in in particular ways. And I think this is the transition that this Tottenham team possibly needed as a second option last year. You know, they have Ben Davies uh, making some excellent passes. I think um, this weekend he was amongst some of the, you know, some of the, some of the players that had the most key passes in the Premier League. Um, and then also, you know, who it was Trippier that, that featured on the right for this game. Correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, you have that. You have the the their ability in terms of aerial delivery from both sides, and when you can pin uh, the opposition back to not threaten that and allow those players to get enough time to send in uh, good crosses, and you couple that with the off-ball movement of Deli Ali and Harry Kane, and even Moses Sissoko was looking uh, relatively threatening in this game. Um, you have have something that's really really difficult to deal with because the delivery of the of Ben Davies. And, Trippier, as I, as I touched on before, is really dangerous. And Harry Kane is obviously unstoppable uh, outside of August. Um, so, um, you know, all of these things were things that Everton were unfortunately, uh, unfortunately for them, not able to, to cope with. And it's easy to see why. My, my, uh, my hope for for Spurs is that as they transition and they continue into the latter stage of the year, you know, pushing on for a Premier League title, which I think is something that we all expect from them at this point, they move back to that maybe first option that they had last season into uh, the competition that they had with some of the, the better sides in the league in terms of, you know, not using Ben Davies and Trippier, but maybe uh, Davinson Sanchez and uh, and Serge Aurier or Danny Rose and Serge Aurier so they can be uh, take on players and and create different types of chances. But it's good to see um, that they have that rotation at, at wing back and they have such a, a flexibility in their system that they can score in, in many different ways. Mm. Certainly encouraged by the flexibility, certainly encouraged by the uh, the depth we've got. Um, a little bit surprised to see Moussa Sirko starting, but I think uh, he did a job in that system and definitely uh, seeing the bench for once having uh, strong options, uh, potential players to come off the bench and, and do a job as well is certainly encouraging. Uh, in terms of Everton, though, Chris, uh, they looked miles off Spurs for all the summer spending. Uh, we've talked about how this is the biggest uh, biggest summer transfer window in their history. Uh, where do you think the problems lie for Koeman? Is this simply a side that looks good on paper that perhaps hasn't addressed the key issues in this squad, namely not replacing Romelu Lukaku? Yeah, I, I think definitely that's an issue. Um, the the thing was, though, with, with Everton, and, and I think I said this in the summer, you look at the players they've bought and they've spent a lot of money, but I don't know how much actual quality um, they've gained. And, and I mean, Michael Keane, I think, is a, is a fairly good defender. Jordan Pickford, I think, is a, a potentially very good goalkeeper. But then, you know, Davy Clarkson, I think personally they overspent on um, the 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 boy from was it Hadjuk Vasic? That seemed again just like an opportunistic. You know, we, we played against him; he was all right. Let's pick him up, type of signing. Sandro, I think you know, really hard to gauge at this point. And then Wayne Rooney felt like quite an emotive signing, but none of them to me were the kind of players. Even Gilfie Sigurdsson where you thought, okay, this is the one that pushes them up there into that race for top six. I think they'll, I personally think they'll finish outside of that. Um, and, and it's difficult when you're a club like Everton. And, and what I mean by that is a, a club that hasn't been in the top four for a while, but aspires to be, because you have to convince players who are of that quality 
that you're a, a wagon worth, you know, hitching yourself onto. Um, and I, I, I think, I don't think they're any closer to top four than when they started. That's the thing. Um, I think they've got some good players. They've obviously spent a lot of money, but you're going to need that player to push you over a bit. I think you look at Liverpool, for me, I think Luis Suarez did that for them. Um, I think he was the kind of player that gave them just an X factor. And I just don't see that with any of the signings in the summer. There's none of them that I look at and think, OK, this this guy is a difference maker. Even uh, Sigurdsson, I, I, I think he's a solid player for a Swansea-type team, but not for a team like Evan. Would yeah. you say, though, Chris, that maybe... Um... You know, you, you mentioned Suarez and how he elevated Liverpool Football Club recently to maybe more consistent contention in the top four. I think the the key there with that is that they've paired that success with Suarez to maybe hitching their wagon to to uh, to a fantastic manager, just as you know Tottenham have and, and Liverpool have, and Everton simply haven't done that. You know, they haven't been able to go out and get someone that's going to seriously implement a, a style of play that's that's you know revolutionizing the way things are, things are done to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a good point. That's I mean that's the thing with with Coleman is that at Feyenoord you know he had quite a a good um reputation goes to Southampton does fairly well again but you could argue you know look at what Van Bronckhorst done at Feyenoord he's gone significantly further so perhaps there's now a need for revisionism on on Coleman's own reputation as a coach. Um the difficulty comes much like with the acquisition of players that you have to try and find a good coach that already isn't at the top level. And I'm not sure where that candidate is. This, this is the thing. It's so easy to spot the problem. It's much harder to, to suggest the solution. And I think that's where, where Everton are caught in the middle at this precise moment is they've got tremendous ambition for the football club, but the actual infrastructure and the actual um, pathways to doing what they want to do just aren't really present at the moment. Let's move on then to Newcastle, Chris. Uh, your team uh, securing a win away at Swansea. Of course, a lot of talk in the build-up was about Renato Sanchez. Uh, had a somewhat difficult game in his Swansea debut, uh, but the man who came away with the headlines was actually Jamal Lascelles, the Newcastle captain, Chris. Yeah, he was He was very good. Um, I've not always been convinced by the cells. To be honest, he's he's had some some good games and then some games that that really were quite poor. Um, but you you start with his his goal line clearance for Tammy Abraham. You then go on to the 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 winning goal that he scores. It was the perfect performance. You know he kept things out at our end and and put one in at their end. So it was very good. I think again you have to give also tremendous credit to Michael Moreno because for all the talk of of Sanchez and what he could do. For me, Moreno was the best midfielder on the on that park Sunday afternoon. Um, he's so graceful, like so elegant. I can can see why some people compare him to to Xabi Alonso. Again, he's not at that level yet, but the potential is there massively. And you know, I, I saw reports saying that Sanchez will cost around eight million in terms of a loan fee for Swansea. And you, by comparison, uh, Moreno will um, cost eight million to to buy permanently so it's it's you know i think it highlights that there's there is definitely a lot of uh value in the market you've just got to be sure on what you're doing 
Obviously, uh, good win for Newcastle, second in their first four games, uh, somewhat positive. But is there still that that worry that West Ham could potentially come in uh, and trigger uh, the release clause for for Rafael Benitez, which I believe is is six million pounds? Obviously, Slavin Bilic uh, somewhat uh, gave himself a stay of execution last night, but the overall sense is that West Ham's interest is serious. I don't think there is. I think this is a largely media fueled. Um, thing personally and it's it's founded on the, the back of yes there is that release clause of course there is um, but I think I think Benitez would rather see out the season and then move on to something if he's going to do that I don't think he he gives himself the stress and hassle of moving to a club where the window is shut first and foremost the squad I don't think as I said before is the most balanced and the owners, for all the money they put in, I would say aren't the most helpful, actually. Um, because we've seen what they've done with Billage, where they've kind of hung him out to dry and said, you know, I think, what was it? Renato Sanchez was one player, Khrushchev was another one. They said they could have signed, but he turned them down. Um, that's not a very positive working relationship. And I think as much as the thought of a job in London and all this kind of thing might appeal to, to a manager of, of Benitez's calibre, I think he'd rather hedge his bets, see out the season, because I think he can keep this Newcastle team up. And then, having done that with next to no money, you have arguably a different set of clubs. I was going to say maybe an Everton type, probably not then because of his Liverpool associations, but a club of that ilk who want to move forward and want to do something ambitious, come in and say, OK, we'll, we'll give you the financial backing that they wouldn't. Also this weekend, uh, Manchester United's 100% record came to an end at Stoke City, a two-all draw on Saturday afternoon. Uh, Jose Mourinho coming out after the game, suggesting that, you know, the absence of Marion Fellaini is essentially what cost them the points. Um, surely Manchester United should be in a position where they can win at Stoke without the big Belgian, Nico? You you would think, right? Mm. You, you, would, uh, you would imagine that Marion Fellaini isn't particularly essential to the way that Jose Mourinho uh, plays football, but he actually is. And I think that's part of the the underlying problem here is that that is the way that Jose Mourinho likes to play football. He likes to bypass the midfield. So there is as little risk as possible. And, and teams like Stoke, who have uh, an influx of talented players like Hesse and Chupamoting, um, you know, don't have the opportunities that they ended up having. Um, but for all the jokes that we make about Marvin Fellaini, Dave and I have discussed plenty of times that um, he's a player that I think suffers from the way that he looks uh, in more ways than one, um, probably with the ladies, but also in the sense that he doesn't look like a particularly technically gifted player or an intelligent one for that, but he does serve a genuine purpose. Um, he, you know, like I said before, Mourinho can bypass the midfield and do certain things with the ball or with a style of play that couldn't be done without him. You know, all you have to do is essentially knock it up near him and he can knock it down to players that are more adept with the ball, like Marcus Rashford or Romelu Lukaku. So, um, I wouldn't read too much into this result considering Manchester United had some pretty excellent chances, but I think, uh, I think this is, this is, this makes the race a little bit more interesting because without it, um, you have a case to, to say that Manchester United are running away with the league pretty early on. And Mourinho has a, an excellent record of doing that in his second year uh, at, at the clubs that he's at. So it, it's a good thing for any Manchester City or Liverpool or Tottenham fan. Yeah, keeps it interesting. Definitely keeps it interesting. Um, Brighton 
recorded their first top flight win for 34 years with, uh, I think it's fair to say, a surprise win over West Brom. Again, we were talking about this one on Thursday uh, with our predictions for Fan League. Uh, we were saying West Brom, they've only conceded one goal all season. Brighton have got problems up front. Uh, they're not going to be able to, uh, to to break down Tony Pulis's side. <laughs> they can't smash three goals in. 3-1 to Brighton in the end. Uh, a fantastic win for them. Uh, less... Shows what we know. Yeah. Yeah, don't trust us, basically. This is this is the invitation to come and join us on Fan League because, you know, it's not overly difficult to prove you better than us. I think we've got eight out of uh, 13 right. So, you know, not a disgraceful uh, set of predictions. That's pretty there. good. It wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. We got a few wrong. We'll be going through them on Thursday, don't worry, before our, before our next round of Fan League predictions. Uh, elsewhere this weekend, Leicester losing 2-1 at home to Chelsea, Alvaro Morata with another goal, as well as uh, Leicester's former man, N'Golo Kante, on the score sheet. Uh, Arsenal, uh, unsurprisingly, winning against Bournemouth, 3-0. Uh, Danny Welbeck with two, Lacazette with the third. Um, worrying times for Eddie Howe, potentially, Chris. Um, obviously, Frank de Boer has, uh, has been sacked by Crystal Palace. West Ham... Uh, you know we're saying Bilic has done himself a favour they have a win tonight but Bournemouth yet to win a game this season uh, find themselves in 19th place what's going wrong for Eddie Howe's side so far this season? Um, I mean I watched this game and and Bournemouth were inept Um, it's you know it's difficult to say because not a drastic amount has changed in, in terms of the personnel I mean I was Slightly facetiously wondering if maybe Jermaine Defoe was the problem at Sunderland after all. Um, I think, look, his lack of hold-up is, is an issue because it didn't really give Bournemouth much of a sticking point um, when they were against Arsenal. But defensively, I, I thought Bournemouth were just very poor at the same time. They, they seem... It, it almost feels as if the players from the Championship era have regressed back to Championship players. And I remember a fair few years ago now, Bournemouth was, I think it was Roger Johnson and Scott Dan in the heart of defence. They started really well. Um, they might have even finished top half. I could be misremembering this. And then I think like second season or something like that, they went down because they just regressed. And I think maybe, you know, the the effort diminishes or something or you get comfortable or whatever. But there, there was just a, a lack of any real quality. And then the midfield looked quite weak and quite porous. Um, and you know his, his options on the bench aren't exactly great Jordan I you know sort of just stands there and doesn't really do anything with the ball and I'm, and I do wonder if, if perhaps I'm not looking to, to throw Howe under the bus here um, yeah I do wonder if, if the the deals he's made the bigger ones the likes of Jordan Ibe etc are coming back to haunt him a little bit now because this is the thing for a team like Bournemouth, 16 million or, or even if it, you know you want to say it was 10 with bonuses or whatever it came out to be, that's a lot of money, um, and it was a, a very big risk. And he, he's remember he spent I think four to six million on Brad Smith as well. He's wasted a good amount of money, and I've seen a lot of Brentford fan, uh, Brentford excuse me, Bournemouth fans defend him and say that you know in the second season these players come good because it takes time to get to his methods. And it almost goes back to that element of pragmatism again. And you wonder, well, is there a point where maybe he has to try and bend to the players at his disposal rather than constantly waiting for them to get on board? Because, I mean, guys like Lise Mousset, who got six, seven million, 
it's just a lot of wastage. That's that's the thing I feel with with Bournemouth. It's been a lot of wastage, and now they're left with a squad that, yeah, it you know it's got some pedigreed names in there, Begovic and Defoe, but as it stands right now, I, I can't see them staying up because uh, it's not so much that they were beaten by Arsenal; it was the way they were beaten. I know I'm talking about a lot of intangibles here, but they just look so lacking in sort of any kind of oomph to them. There was no penetration really to speak of. There was nothing slick about their play for, for large portions. And and Arsenal had a fairly easy day when realistically, I know Nico predicted um, a, a potential win, I think, for, for, for Bournemouth or, or something along those lines. Mm. They could have gone there at least with the belief that, you know, we could get something. I think it's fair to say that Arsenal were at, uh, they were, you know, one of the legs was shaky, if nothing else. And I just feel like, yeah, Bournemouth didn't really show up. Hard to disagree with that. Uh, straightforward win for Arsenal in the end. But of course, they've got Chelsea coming up this weekend. So uh, an implosion is imminent, uh, I'm sure. Uh, elsewhere in the Premier League this weekend, uh, the Marco Silva. Hype train continues. Uh, Watford beating Southampton 2-0 at St. Mary's. Uh, quietly lift themselves up to fourth in the table. Two wins and two draws in Marco Silva's first four games uh, at the club. So fantastic start for him. Uh, and I think that's all the results. I think that's all the Premier League games wrapped up. Yeah, I think that'll do us. Um, is there any other business from around Europe? Maybe we should discuss any other talking points. I'm hearing a little bit about Carlo Ancelotti, Nico. Yeah, I was about to say. Uh, another defeat for Bayern Munich uh, from Hoffenheim. Julian Nagelsmann once again masterminding this one, seen by some uh, as the, the the potential next appointment as Bayern manager. Um, some saying Carlo Ancelotti isn't even going to last the season. Some rumours that he could be off to the Chinese Super League. It doesn't seem to be going so swimmingly for him uh, for him there at Munich. Yeah, I think he's made really the wrong decisions in terms of personnel when he's gotten there. Like I argued with with uh, Dave and and Lawrence sometime during the summer, or sometime before the season started. I, I argued in the case, you know, that Guardiola had brought in some some fresh faces in terms of uh, using Kingsley Coleman and, and Douglas Costa um, on the wings, as opposed and and really changing the old guard of Frank Ribéry and Robin, who you know rightly had had. Uh, positioned themselves in a in a place of emotional attachment for Bayern Munich fans and had done a lot for the club and Arjen Robben still still does a lot for the club in terms of performance. You know he's a freak of nature, still um, scoring the way he does and and doing the things he does at such an old age. But I think it was really the right move to to move towards that direction because I think not only do you ha- not have that um, that always relevant threat of them sustaining some sort of niggling injury or this that and the other but you have a a different play style you have younger players that are more flexible in the things that they're able to do off the ball and those are some of the issues that we saw last season is that you know it's it's it doesn't seem to the, the the transition from a Guardiola style of football to a Carlo Ancelotti style of football doesn't seem to be going as well as it possibly could have you know he had an amazing transition between a Mourinho style of football when he came into Real Madrid to, to his style. Obviously, they won La Decima, um, and they had some credi- incredibly intel- uh, talented players to do that. Um, but you felt like there was a, a potential for similar things, and, and maybe things had gone not 
exactly the way that he would have wanted to in the first year, but there was potential for the second year. But that the pattern of, of underperformance seems to consist to this year, and it seems to be something wrong with his style of play and maybe his relationship with some of the players as opposed to anything um, that uh, that he, you know, that, that is that is wrong otherwise. So I think um, also there, there's a possibility that uh, James Rodriguez was a really poor move in terms of on the pitch stuff. I think financially it was a brilliant move by by Bayern Munich and and it's par for the course in terms of what they've been able to do and how they've been able to circumvent you know still being amongst the European elite but not spending near as much as anybody else does but um you know that that midfield of Xabi Alonso and Arturo Vidal and, and Thiago had a great deal of balance because you have Xabi Alonso playing sort of a, a pivot role and commanding the possession and distributing the play as he has in his, his entire career but obviously he's retired and then you had uh, Arturo Vidal being that destroyer but being that back and forth sort of I know Dave hates the term but box-to-box midfielder and then you had Tiago who was really free in that role and that's when we saw the best of him was being that free player you know contributing defensively but also wandering all over the pitch and 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 completing the possession in different ways and being really that attacking player that we knew he he could be um, but with James Rodriguez, there, there's a little bit of, of, of discord in there. And it's obviously extremely difficult to replace someone like Xabi Alonso. Um, so, you know, I think there are a lot of things that are going wrong. And, and perhaps Bayern Munich isn't the place for Carlo Ancelotti. Mm, all is not well, uh, certainly. Uh, Robert Lewandowski also uh, also coming under some uh, fire from the club CEO, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge after he questioned the club's transfer policy. So, yeah, definitely some uh, some issues, I think it's fair to say, at the club. Uh, anything else from this weekend that you noticed? Chris, any other talking points you want to mention? Um, that's a very good point. Anything else that stuck out? I was quite interested to see... Um, I saw a lot of talk about Barcelona's formation and the fact they seem to have returned to uh, the false nine system with Messi playing through the middle. Um you know, something that, you know, we, we saw at Barcelona before Neymar arrived at the club uh, and Estelle Valverde seemingly returning to that. It'd be interesting if they line up like that against Juventus in midweek in the Champions League, of course, which is back. Um, I think I think on a non-football or maybe less football-related note, I, I know it's not new news mm. or, or brand new, but um, I thought it was really funny if you have Raheem Sterling on Instagram he uh, took a video of Leroy Sané's back tattoo, which, mind you, takes up his entire back and is none other than himself celebrating uh, a goal that he scored for Manchester City, which what? is just the strangest thing that anyone has ever done. Um, it's an entire back tattoo of himself scoring. Leroy Sané. This is like Leroy Sané. This is like Steve-O star. Steve-O. Yeah, Steve-O stuff. <laughs> He's it's, famously it's got a tattoo insane. of himself with two thumbs up on his back. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What? I, I find that hard to. Uh, oh no! Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's definitely. Yeah, he has definitely got that too on his back. Bloody hell! Why would you do that? My God, that is quite something. Uh, yeah, highly recommend you go and check out Leo Rosano's uh, back tattoo of himself celebrating a goal against Monaco. Um, so yeah, would you ever get a tattoo? Have you got a tattoo, Nico? I do have a tattoo. I do have you? a small uh, triangle on my left pec. Oh, yeah. What's so. it mean? Does it mean anything? Is it just a... It's too long for this podcast. Oh. It's a shape with three points, mate. Yeah, fair enough. 
Chris, you know, Chris, you, Chris has summed it up there. Chris, you're interested in any body art? Maybe get yourself celebrating a goal on your on your back or something. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think that'd be, I think that'd be quite I, something I to see. I tell you what, though, if I was, I would get Adam Boltwood's yes. dirty back post finish in the yes. next level football league. Yes. I think, yeah, I think we'd all get that, really. There's fewer, more momentous goals than that, I think it's safe to say. Uh, anyway, guys. Hey, I think Dave's going to have to get a tattoo. He's got to get something done, my God. He, he's, he's quiet. He's, he's flying under the radar. I think a front free. A front free logo is is more than fitting punishment for uh, not only losing the bet but so far dodging any sort of punishment for his ridiculous prediction. Um, but yeah, we'll see what happens to that, guys. We're, we're working on it. We're working on it. Next time he's on the podcast, we'll give him a very hard time. So we'll see what happens there. Um, but anyway, guys, thank you so much for joining us for the Weekend Review. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you listen to us. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday, as always, with the Q&A and the Fan League preview of the weekend's games. Um, enjoy the Champions League in the week, guys. It's back. Spurs are going to smash Dortmund. Uh, Barcelona and Juventus are playing, of course. We've got Atletico Madrid-Roma. Got some big, tasty fixtures there. We'll be back on Thursday to uh, to talk for it all. Until then, though, Chris, where can the listeners, where can the whole find more of you? At the front three. Oh, so selfless. So selfless. Uh, Nico, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me at theringer.com. I am not uh, part of their staff, but uh, obviously I just did something like we talked about on Liverpool, which is really cool for me to to feature on a site of such magnitude. So go and check it out. Tell me what you think. Please don't insult me. Um, but yeah. We will, uh, we will definitely link to that in the description, guys. So uh, why not click on that right now? Go and check it out. Now the podcast is finished and we'll see you on Thursday. 